Good morning to everyone. Let's continue our time of worship by looking in the Word. John chapter 19, verses 28 and 30. John chapter 19, verses 28 uh, and 30. Let me say while, I, while I'm turning and you're turning to our text for today, two things I want to say to you. I want to encourage you once again to pick up a reading plan when you leave here today. Just go out to the welcome desk, pick up a reading plan for next year. Now, you may say, as you get to reading it, you may say, I want to add more to that. And if that's what you want to do, then please do that. Uh, but this is just a plan to help us have a time with the Lord each day where we will we'll pray and then we'll read and reflect and study and meditate the Word of God to apply and live out. And I told you before, if we will do this next year, it will literally transform our lives. In our lives, this time next year, we will be closer to the Lord. We will know Him in a, in, a, in a stronger way if we will have that time that we dig in the Word uh, each day. So let me encourage you uh, to do that as you leave. Now, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, we're going to meet with some families. There's a number of families that, that uh, we're providing for uh, and our church family is providing for the Christmas gifts for their children. So those folks will gather at 4 o'clock this afternoon in the fellowship hall, and there'll be refreshments for them there and light refreshments. And then what we're going to do is tell them the Christmas story. We're going to tell them why we celebrate Christmas. We're going to present the gospel to them, give them an opportunity to come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so um, that, that's going to be what we'll be doing this afternoon. And then after that, I'm going to go ahead and tell you all this now because um, at the end of this service, we're going to do a special commitment time for the capital campaign. And the first service, they came forward to do that commitment, and then they bolted. <laughs> they were gone. So I didn't get a chance to tell them those things. So I want to go ahead and tell you all now in case you all run out of here uh, at the end. Uh, so uh, we're, we'll be tonight. We'll have that 4 o'clock meeting, and then at 6 o'clock, we'll go ahead and have our prayer time because for the next two Sundays, we'll, we'll not do that. So we'll spend some time praying this afternoon. And so please pray for God to bless that. Well, let's ask the Lord to bless the time now as we open the Word of God that He would speak into our lives. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for this day. I thank You for allowing us to be here today. I love my church family. I love coming to fellowship. I love coming uh, to worship You together. Lord, I, I love coming to learn together. I love that I get to serve You with these people, Lord. And I ask you now, Father, to remove distractions from our hearts and minds. I pray that you will defeat every tactic of the devil meant to deceive and distract today. And I pray that you will open our hearts and let us receive from you a word that will glorify you, that will, that will change us. Lord, my desire today is to uh, exalt Christ. There is no way I can do that apart from you. I'm asking for you to give me the ability that you supply to preach the truth of God and I pray, Lord, you will do a transforming work in lives. Uh, Christians and those who are unsaved, I pray for them to be born again today. So, Father, I pray for clarity of mind, clarity of speech. I pray to preach with compassion, with great love. Lord, with conviction, with Holy Spirit power. And I pray, Lord God, for you to do a work here. So I commit this time to you, and I do so in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30 is our text today. We're, we're in this series entitled, The Cries of Christmas. Now, this is the third message into this series, and we're, we're talking about how all these cries tie together. 
We're tracing the meta-narrative of Scripture beginning in Genesis and going all through to the return of the, of the Lord. And so uh, that, that's what we're dealing with in this uh, series. Today, I want to talk about the cry from the cross. Now, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest act of love ever committed. It is the greatest demonstration of love. As you heard Frank read a moment ago, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, for God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the greatest act of love ever. The crucifixion and then the subsequent resurrection is hope for all people. Without the crucifixion, without the resurrection, there is absolutely no hope. But God in His great love brought this hope. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Remember, the word propitiation is that theological term that means to satisfy the justice of God, to satisfy the wrath of God toward our sin. In love, Jesus came to be that propitiation for our sins. And this act of love was done in response to the greatest act of unlove, if you will, that has ever been committed. And that act of unlove was the act of rebellion Adam and Eve committed when they sinned. You see, remember something. If we love God, we obey Him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. And so it's an act of love. When we show our love to God, then it's, we do so by obeying Him. People often throw around the term and the phrase, I love God. But if you love God, then you obey Him. You obey His Word. You desire to submit yourself to Him and His will. And, and they did not. Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. But the cross is a response to that act of unlove. The cross also demonstrates the depth of the depravity of sin among human beings. Our sin is so serious and so bad that it took God Himself becoming human to come to earth, to live the human experience, and to die on behalf of the human race to allow there to be redemption of sin and reconciliation to Him. That's how serious sin is. Sometimes we're very flippant about sin. We don't, we don't think about the weight of sin. We just said, oh, big deal, I'm a sinner, so what? And when we say those kind of things, we don't recognize the magnitude and weight of sin. The cross of Calvary emphasizes the magnitude of our sin. Some, though, uh, have the idea that the cross is foolishness, and they reject it. That They prefer to believe what Jesus did by dying on the cross has no significance at all. But those of us who believe know that it is the power of God to salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the Bible says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Without the cross, there is no salvation. And all people of all time 
would be helplessly and hopelessly condemned and damned to hell forever, paying for our sin because that is what our sin deserves. It's the ultimate crime. It's the ultimate rebellion. And it carries with it the ultimate penalty, eternal separation from God to suffer for those sins forever and ever. That's how you pay for your sin. Now, let me illustrate it this way. In our society, if someone, let's just say, uh, commits premeditated murder, so they begin to think through things, you know, I'm going to take this person's life in this way, so they commit this act of murder, then a just society punishes a person for, for committing that crime, right? So there's usually for, for first-degree murder, there's, there, there's two penalties for this capital offense. Either there's a death penalty or there's life imprisonment. Either way, you're paying with your life for that crime. If you're on death row and, you, and you, you're there uh, until you die, then all of life you're paying for your sin. If you give your life, then basically you're saying my whole entire life is given to pay for this crime. For those of the human race who are sinners, which is all of us, unless we've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, then to pay for sin, it requires an eternal punishment. That's the just penalty for the act of rebellion. There are people who scoff at the cross. They reject Jesus. They reject the witness of the gospel, the drawing of the Holy Spirit. I have known people in my lifetime who have gone through life. Some of them were church people, and they were in church, and they were in church fairly regularly, and they, you know, would call themselves Christian, yet there was just something about their life. There was never any deep devotion to Christ. When you begin to talk about the things of God with them, they didn't really want to talk about it that much, and that was not a real interest in their lives, and nothing in their life really showed any type of deep and radical devotion to Jesus Christ. It was more, you know, sort of a thing they did uh, that made them feel good about themselves, uh, and, and so they, they went through life like that, never truly coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I have had conversations with some of those people, and when talking with them, I'm thinking of one in particular this morning who never responded to me. When I would talk about the gospel to that person, that person never responded one way or the other about whether or not they had, had been converted, but that person was regular in our church for many years. And when that person died, his son asked me this question. Did you ever talk with my dad about if you know, he'd really made a decision for Christ? And I said, well, I tried to. And the son said to me, I've always doubted that my father was converted. People all around the gospel and yet never truly called on Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. They did not take that very seriously. But that's just, bottom line is, without the cross of Christ, there is no hope. There is no hope apart from that. So today I want to talk about the cry of the curse. Our pa parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. They committed sin and rebellion against God, it, and it cost them. And the curse affected all of creation. It's affected the entirety of the human race. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all 
sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die. To be in Adam just simply means that you're a human being. If you're a human being, that means you have descended from Adam. He is the head of the human race. And so those in Adam all die. Even so in Christ all shall be made alive. That is all that are in Christ. You're in Christ by faith. You place your faith and trust in Him. And you're in Christ and you're made alive. Same thing is said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's not one man, woman, boy, or girl who has ever lived or will live that is not dead in sin unless they have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ based on what He did on the cross. Now, after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, God announced some consequences. Remember the first message out of Genesis chapter 3, and, and there were uh, Satan was addressed, God addressed him and, and pronounced some uh, uh, consequences on him, and then Eve, and then Adam. But in those consequences, remember, as I said a couple times already, even last week, that there's hope that he gives also. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So one born of woman would crush Satan's head. That is, undo his work. What was Satan's work? His work was to come and deceive human beings who tempt them to sin, and they did so that they would be alienated from God. And that's exactly what happened. But there's going to be one who comes. He's called the seed there in verse 15 of chapter uh, 3. Uh, the, the Bible tells us in, in um, Genesis 22:18 that, that Abraham has promised that through his seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 that seed is Christ. And so it's he that will come and destroy the works of the devil. Well, that's what 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 says that he does. The Old Testament, as I mentioned last week, would point it to one who would come and who would crush the enemy and his work. And we talked last week about the cry from the cradle. That marked the entry into the world by that seed, the one who would do the work necessary to redeem people and crush the work of the enemy. Jesus was born to live a sinless life, to live perfectly in obedience to God. He was born to die for the sin of the world. When John the Baptist, who was prophesied to be the one who would be the forerunner of the Messiah, and six months before Gabriel visited Mary, uh, he, he visited Zacharias, who was um, father of John the Baptist and this other miracle was done by, uh, by God as a couple way past childbearing and, and supernaturally they were able to conceive. He was to be the forerunner, the, the, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi that there would be this one who would come and be the forerunner of Christ. Well, when he saw Jesus, John chapter 1 verse 29 said, records John's response, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had to die to satisfy God's justice against man's sin. That's what the cry from the cross is all about. 
Now look with me in these verses. Verse 28 through 30. John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Bowing his head... He gave up his spirit. Now, the main idea of this message this morning is that the cry from the cross announced the work was accomplished to reverse the curse of sin and reconcile those who believe to God. Now, many of the Old Testament prophecies had to deal specifically with the death of the Lord Jesus. He had to die. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, so he had to die in our place for us to be delivered from our sin and its penalty. Our sins had to be atoned for, and only Jesus could do it. He had to suffer and die. Now, let me just remind you of the context of this passage I just read to you. The religious leaders of Jesus' day did not believe in the Lord. They did not believe his miracles. They just rejected those miracles. They were done to prove he's the Messiah. They just rejected that. They did not believe the scriptures that pointed to him, that he's a fulfillment of those scriptures. They did not believe the work of the Holy Spirit around them to convince them that he is indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's just like people today. People reject all the witness that God has provided of himself Uh, from general revelation all the way up to specific revelation. They resist the Spirit's work. They deny the Word of God, and they resist the gospel uh, of Jesus. Well, that's exactly what these religious leaders were doing. They were filled with jealousy. They did not like it that the people were kind of going after uh, Christ, and so they, they just wanted to destroy Him. So they offered Judas some money They let them know how they could uh, catch Jesus away from the crowds so that they could arrest him, and they did. And then they had a mock trial before the Sanhedrin. Then they brought him before Pilate. And they began to pressure Pilate to put him to death. And Pilate, and, and several times you see in the gospel account, he's saying, I find nothing wrong with him. He's not guilty of anything. Matter of fact, Pilate knew that the reason that this was going on was because the religious leaders were jealous of Jesus. So they, or Pilate, had the Lord Jesus scourged, thinking this would probably satisfy everyone. And here he comes, he's, he's brought back before them with a robe on, and he's been beaten uh, just mercilessly with a Roman scourging. And uh, you know, he says, Behold your king. And then the religious leaders had stirred up the crowd, had deceived the crowd. And they started crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate gave in to that pressure. And he commanded that Jesus be crucified. Now, crucifixion was horrible. The condemned would have to carry the cross beam of the cross on his shoulder to the place in which be crucified. 
And as you know, the Lord Jesus, because his beating was so severe and had lost so much blood, he was weakened by that state and collapsed on the way to the place where he would be crucified. And then there was a man commandeered to carry his cross the rest of the way. When a person arrived at the place where they would, where they would be crucified, they were nailed to the cross. Very painful because some of those spikes would be driven right through areas where lots of nerves are. So they would be nailed to that cross and sometimes a person lasted for days on the cross. Sometimes they would die of dehydration, sometimes just simple heart failure, sometimes shock, their body would go into shock and they would die. Many times it was because of suffocation because the way that they were hanging on the cross and they would go down, it was hard to get a breath. They had to push themselves up to be able to take in a breath. And so they would get so weak certain point where they could not even push themselves up anymore and they could not get a breath and they would just pass out and then die because they could not breathe and so the Lord Jesus is on the cross and he is suffering the way that he is suffering there's much more going on there in a spiritual sense than just a simple simple physical aspects of crucifixion the Bible says the sin of the world was laid upon him so he's there on that cross, and at the foot of the cross, the soldiers are just having themselves a good time, and they're casting lots to divide out his clothing, which was a fulfillment of prophecy. Mary, his mother, was there. Some other women were there. John, the apostle, was there witnessing this, and he's the one who wrote down by the Spirit's inspiration this gospel. And so the Bible tells us in these verses for today... Knowing everything was accomplished, the Lord said, I thirst. And being given something to drink then, he, he spoke out loudly this declaration. It is finished. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit or he died. Now there are two things we need to understand about that phrase, it is finished and what was actually accomplished uh, as this declaration says the first thing that we need to understand is that Christ Jesus accomplished perfect obedience for us notice in verse 28 the Bible says Jesus knowing all things were accomplished what are all things we've got to ask ourselves that question we also need to look at the word accomplished. That word accomplished is the exact same word that's translated finished in verse 30. It's also the same tense and voice and mood in the original Greek language. It's a perfect tense verb, which means it's a completed action that goes on to have continuing results. And so it is accomplished. What was accomplished? What he came to do? The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. It required two things. It required an absolutely sinless life, and then it required a substitutionary death. Those two things were absolutely uh, essential for Christ to be our Redeemer. And on that cross, he knew that all things had been accomplished. He had lived an obedient life. He had fulfilled the law of God with perfection and the only thing left to do was to literally now die. 
remember something. He could have at any moment said, this ain't happening. He, matter of fact, remember, remember what the Word of God says, that he could have called legions of angels to come. He could have annihilated every one of them, but he willingly submitted to the Father's will and died on behalf of the sin of the world. He knew his life had been lived with perfection. He knew he was now going to die, and he saw that all things were accomplished. Let me focus on this aspect for a moment. For him to be the atonement for human sin... He had to first live a sinless life. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He lived a perfect life. He, he fulfilled the law of God with perfection. He did not think a bad thought. He did not have an evil desire. He did not say an evil word. He never did anything wrong. He never did any sin whatsoever. He lived with absolute perfection. In the upper room, right before he was arrested, then the next day he was crucified. He has the last supper with his disciples. He's teaching them. John 13, 14, 15, 16 records that. In chapter 17... Uh, his prayer for them and then those who would come to know him through their witness are prayed for. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 17 that his work was finished. So he was anticipating he was going to complete the work on the cross, but he knew his life to that point had been lived with absolute obedience to God the Father. Let me tell you why that's so significant. Two reasons. Number one, I mean, he had to be perfect to be our sacrifice. But... He did what other humans, including our parents, could not and did not do. Matter of fact, let's go back to the garden for a minute. Y'all with me? Y'all do your head like that. Y'all with me? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So Satan has already tempted Eve. He's calling her to question the Word of God. He's, he's, he's calling, he's trying to get her to question the goodness of God and leading her to deny the word of God that's what he's doing so then she sees the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they're not supposed to eat of and um, she says you know what that looks good for food you know what that is lust of the flesh it's one aspect of the lust of the flesh First John chapter 2, verse 16 talks about the lust of the flesh. Then she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. You know what that is? Lust of the eyes. First John chapter 2, verse 16 talks about that. Then this tree is desirable to make one wise. That's to elevate her. It's the pride of life. First John chapter 2, verse 16 talks about that. She gave in to the temptation and she ate of the fruit. She sinned against God, gave it to her husband who did that also. Eve failed the test of temptation. So did Adam. They sinned. But let me just show you what happened in Jesus' day. In Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, the Lord Jesus was tempted also. This is also recorded in Matthew 4. So he's in the wilderness for 40 days and he's fasting. 
and Satan comes to him to tempt him, and he's hungry, the Bible says, because he hadn't eaten in 40 days. And so here's what Satan did. He said, why don't you turn those stones right there to bread and eat that and satisfy your flesh is what he was tempting him to do. And here's what the Lord Jesus said. Oh, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, what he's saying is this. You don't live by desires, human desires. You live by the word of God. There was no lust in him. He obeyed God. So Satan tried again. And he said, you see all these cities of the world? You see all of this? If you'll fall down and worship me right now, I'll give all this to you. And he said, the word of God's clear. You worship God and him only. Get behind me, Satan. No desire for the lust of the eyes. Then Satan says, why don't you throw yourself off this pinnacle? And Psalm 91 says that he'll send angels to bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. What he's tempting him to do is to have this big display. He'd do that, and, and angels rescue him. Everybody go, whoa, this is him, and, and it just kind of elevates him. That was not the will of God. He knew it wasn't the will of God, and he said this, you don't tempt the Lord your God. He did not fall into the pride of life. So he was able to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. He lived with absolute perfection. John Wesley said that Christmas is the emphatic statement of the shocking good news that the only one who could save us came to live in a body every bit as human as ours and through his life, in one of these bodies, he defeated both sin and death. When he saw that everything was accomplished, he knew he had lived the per perfectly obedient life. Now, here, why is that so significant? Because like I've said to you many times, when we by faith receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then the righteousness that is Christ, because of his absolute obedient life, is imputed to us. So that when we're looked at by God, he sees the perfect obedient life of Jesus. That's why we're justified before God. He accomplished a perfectly obedient life. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22 says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Romans chapter 5, verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. We're made righteous because of his Obedience. So that's the first thing that I, I want us to see about. That's what's accomplished by the Lord Jesus and what's meant by this statement, it is finished. But the second thing I want you to see is this, and that is that Christ Jesus accomplished atonement for our sins, verse 30. The Lord Jesus knew that all things 
had been fulfilled. God's justice had been completely satisfied. The price of redemption had been paid. There was no longer a need for the sacrificial system, no longer a need for the day of atonement uh, because uh, there had been one sacrifice for all made forever through Jesus Christ. The Lord said, I thirst. Now you can imagine that being on that cross with all this blood lost, his body becoming dehydrated, his mouth parched, being hard to speak, hard to say anything. He said, I thirst. And that was heard by the soldiers. They took that um, kind of vinegar wine and put it on in a sponge on hyssop and on a reed and put it up to him so he could just draw out the liquid into his mouth and take that so it wet his mouth. His vocal cords were hydrated there to do that so that he could say something very loudly. Other gospels talk about how that he cried out loudly and then gave up his spirit. John records exactly the words that he said, and it's very significant that John does so. Now, sometimes I wonder, well, why didn't the rest of them? God had a purpose for John in this. But here's what the Lord Jesus said It is finished. And that declaration was not a declaration of despair or defeat, but of absolute victory. He had accomplished what needed to be done. And the Bible tells us something very significant took place. There was an earthquake that happened after the Lord Jesus died. He, he, he proclaimed that, and then he gave up the spirit, that is, he died. And then the Bible says there was an earthquake that took place. Some around the cross even believed this is indeed the Son of God because of what happened after that. But something also very significant happened in the temple in Jerusalem. If you remember, now there was a, what's called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. It's separated in the temple from the holy place. The most holy place, uh, the high priest entered only one time of year after he had offered sacrifices for himself, and they, they went in in fear and trembling. The high priest did to offer an, a, a blood sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the people, and people feared that he might die in the presence of God there. And so when he came back out, it was a relief to everyone. And so there was only limited access to God, only the high priest, one time a year. But the Word of God tells us when Jesus Christ died on that cross, the veil that separated that special spot was torn from the top to the bottom, signifying that God did it. He tore it from the top to the bottom, opening up access to him. Now there's a way to God, direct presence of God. It's through Jesus Christ. It is finished. Someone wrote that his first cry tore the silence. That is, when he was born that Bethlehem night, that clear night. We know it's clear because the stars were out. So he, so it, he let out that cry of life. And that cry tore the silence. But his second cry tore the veil. His third cry will tear open the heavens. He's coming back. We're going to talk about it next week. He atoned for our sins on that cross. And when we're united with Christ, our sins are wiped away. They're forgiven. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 speaks of this, how 
Our certificate of debt was nailed to the cross. Our sin, past, present, and future is forgiven, covered under the blood of Christ. The work of the cross reversed the curse for all who received Jesus. At the curse, death entered the world. Death came to all men. Death reigned over everyone. But Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 that Christ became a curse for us. If you remember what Genesis chapter 3 said, the Bible says that sin brought pain in childbirth. But no one knew more pain than the Lord Jesus suffering to bring many sons to glory, as Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 says. Thorns resulted on the earth because of sin and the fall, but Jesus endured a crown of thorns to bring salvation. Sin brought sweat. God told Adam he'd have to sweat to make out a living in the, uh, on the land. So sin brought sweat, and Jesus sweat drops of blood to win salvation for us, Luke twenty two forty four says. Sin brought sorrow, the Scripture says. But Jesus came, being the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief to save us, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 and 3. Sin brought death. But Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 tells us that he tasted death for everyone. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, the Bible says, Inasmuch then... As the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus completed what was necessary for us. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He died for our sin. But he did not stay dead. He did not stay dead, the Word of God tells us. I... I was thinking about this this past week. I was thinking about maybe what Satan might have been strategizing and thinking through this whole process of Jesus' death. Maybe at one point he thought, maybe I can just keep him from dying. Maybe I can just tempt him not to do this. And so maybe that was what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, he's going to do it. He's going to submit to the Father's will. Well, maybe through this act of death, he'll be so humiliated that no one will follow him. Well, he died. Maybe we can keep him dead. But the Bible tells us when Christ died that there was something that took place between his death and his resurrection. First uh, Peter chapter 3 tells us he went to where the spirits in prison were and he proclaimed victory over them. While the tomb was sealed, maybe we can keep him in. You can't stop him. He rose. He rose. Maybe they thought, well, we'll just fix up, up a little lie. 
And we'll just tell everybody that somebody stole his body out of the tomb. Well, within days of his resurrection, thousands upon thousands of people had believed and come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He is alive. He appeared to over 500 people, and they were so affected by the resurrection that they were willing no longer to hide themselves and run away, but to live boldly for Jesus and take the gospel of Jesus Christ over the entire world. They were willing to suffer. They were willing to go to prison. They were willing to die some of the most horrific deaths you could ever imagine and never recant their faith. You know why? Because they saw the resurrected Christ. They knew he is absolutely real. And they lived for, they lived for him. And now, passed down through the generations, the gospel has come to us. I have never seen the Lord Jesus Christ with my eyes, but I do not need to be convinced that he rose because I'm telling you there is no way that what happened to me could have happened by my own initiative, by my own uh, uh, willpower, by my own discipline. I'm telling you I met the Son of God, and he made me a new creation in him. He changed me. Ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Well, he died and he rose. The cry from the cross brings hope of eternal life to everyone who believes. And when the Lord was on earth and before his ascension, back to the Father after a 40-day period where he was teaching and encouraging his disciples. He said to them, you are to be witnesses to me. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Matthew 28, 19 says, go and make disciples of all the nations. So he gave them a clear mission. That mission was not just for those that were there then. That mission is for everyone. He said... And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, you know what? The end of the age hadn't come yet. That commission is for every generation of believers. And what he said is to go be my witnesses. Go witness about this. There's, there's a problem with the churches of America today. Now, there are healthy remnants of God's people in many places, but, but I, I tell you... We're either trying to be so worldly we become no longer effective for the kingdom of God or we become so focused on ourselves we spend more time fighting amongst ourselves, worried about this programming of the church or that programming of the church, this person getting mad at that person. We spend all of our energies in those kind of conflicts and those kind of things while the world burns down around us. And people are hitting hell wide open. Every day, and the people of God are twiddling their thumbs and doing all sorts of things, but doing what we're called to do, and that is to take the message I've just preached to the world, starting right here. He told his disciples, you be witnesses to me. He also said, you should obey. He said, when you make a disciple, verse 20 of Matthew chapter 28, teach him to observe all that I have commanded you. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, it's the Sermon on the Mount, one section of the Sermon on the Mount. That whole chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's gospel, the famous Sermon on the Mount, is a, is a sermon to tell followers of Jesus Christ what they're to look like and how they're to live. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, he tells his followers, you are. He didn't say you, you will become. He says you are salt and light. You know what that means? That means you live in such a holy way that you preserve decay. You live in such a holy way that you dispel the darkness through your obedient life and through your witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. When I think about what Jesus Christ did for me, I need to be reminded of what he now expects of me, that he saved me by his grace. I'm to be salt and light. I'm to be a witness to him. I am, I am to be obedient to him. So today, as the people of God, we reflect on the work of the cross, the cry from the cross, what Jesus accomplished for us. What do we do in light of that? Humble ourselves before the Lord today and say, Lord God, Lord Jesus, I am yours to follow you, to obey you, to make my life is to revolve around you. It's not my desires, not my agenda. It is yours. That's what we should do. Now, there's probably some in this room, some online listening, and today what you recognize is you've never been saved. You might believe in Jesus. You might have even gone through some motions at one point in your life, but there was never a real change in your life. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if you're in Christ, you become a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. I, listen, I don't need to have to think very hard to see the change that happened in me. I can think about the, the old stuff in my life. I mean, I know what those things were. And I know that when Jesus Christ changed me, when I called on him to be my Savior, I know that he so changed me that there was a 180-degree turn in my life. Instead of heading in this one direction, I started going in a completely different direction. Well, that's how I know I'm in Christ. I called on Him in faith, and then there was this change that happened. And I became that new creation in Jesus Christ. Has that ever happened to you? See, what I fear is we're going to have a lot of people, you know, in churches all over our community and all over America that come to church every week and they consider themselves Christians and, you know, because they, you know, went through some motions maybe early on in their life. But, man, there's just no evidence there. There just never really has been. that. You start talking to them about the things of God and, and they just kind of zone out on you. They don't even know how to respond back so often. And, and there's no intimacy there with God. It, it, now, either they are just so undiscipled or it could very well be they've never been converted. We, we need to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Now, you may say, why would you say that and make somebody mad? If it makes you mad, I'm sorry. I don't want to make anybody mad. I, I always want people to like me. I love everybody and I want people to love me back. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm not going to sit here and dilly-dally around when the eternity is at stake for people that I love. And anybody who does, I'd say they're not much of a man of God. I'll just tell you that. Have we truly been saved? Have we truly been saved?
Have we truly called on him to be Lord and Savior? Oh, I beg you, if you have not today, give your life to Jesus. Repent. Call on him to be your Savior. Truly submit to him as Lord. I'm telling you, he'll change you. He'll change you. And we're going to give an opportunity in a moment. We're going to stand to sing, and I'll be down front here. And you come to me and say, look, I need Jesus as my Savior today. And I'm tired of living the lie. I need to give my life to Jesus. The altar's open here today because, see, there may be many of us in this room. We're believers, but maybe we've let the world distract us. It happens to us. It happens. We get so busy with this or that. We get so focused on that. And And sometimes if we're not continually feeding ourselves in the Word of God, we're not continually thinking on the things of God, then what happens is we get sidetracked. We get sucked into the world again. And, And maybe that's happened to you. And today, we need to remedy that. We've got to turn away from that. We've got to get back on track with Jesus. Would you get, would you surrender to Him fresh today? Would you confess that before Him today? Others need to join the church today. Some need to just come and pray today. However God is speaking, let's obey Him. Father, thank You for Your Word. And I pray now, Lord, that You would do a work now. I believe You've spoken. You spoke to me, Lord. You worked in my life. I believe, Lord, You've done that in others. Now I pray now that people will come and give their lives to Jesus. I pray, Lord, for... Christians to just be renewed in our walk with you. Maybe we just need to spend some time just worshiping you, Lord, as we've been reminded of what you've done for us. So have your way now, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, please.